This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. It was such a challenge. It was exciting. And again, I did it for myself. I didn't do it for people to read it or follow it. The joy was in the doing. So I think that is the most important thing. That's what even like, say, exploring vegetarian restaurants around the world. For me, the sheer wonder of finding, you know, these in the places where you least expect them, like in the carnivorous capitals of the world, whether it's Paris, whether it's Berlin, whether it's China, Japan, you know, to find these fabulous, throbbing, gourmet, amazing vegetarian restaurants, it's, it's a joy in itself. We know at least one thing about Rashmi Udai Singh. She has looked at food at least 39 different ways. In addition to a career spanning from working for India's IRS to producing health advocacy media to her role as an international food critic and TV star, she's also written 39 books about food. She's even a recipient of the Gourmand World Cookbook Award. Coming up... Her knighthood from the French government, thanks to one of her most successful books. The time she told Chef Gordon Ramsay that his food choices might be affecting his notorious mood. Her search for the best vegetarian dishes in the finest restaurants around the world. Why she likens herself to Christopher Columbus and his many discoveries. How the identity of a foodie or gourmet has moved away from the elite and how the passion for something as universal as food can lead to a career of celebrity, glamour, and opportunity. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. And welcome to my kitchen. Rashmi, it is so wonderful to see you. We met in India, I think it's 15 years ago. I was there for a very special birthday. And then we saw each other again in New York. We went on a restaurant safari. Yes, it was great fun. <laughs> Fabulous. It was great fun. But Rashmi, you know, One Woman Kitchen, the name of the show is inclusive, diverse, and intergenerational. But now that you're here, straight from India, and fr yesterday yes. you came, we can now say we're also international. So thank you for that. Welcome. How was your trip? Thank you for having me, Roseanne. My trip was like 14 or 15 hours. <laughs> oh, dear. I landed last evening, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank Jet lagged you. and all. Of course, but you travel so much. In fact, um, again, the name of the show is One Woman Kitchen, but Rashmi, you are really a one-woman wonder. Thank you. you. <laughs> it's good to you, hear that. <laughs> yes, you have written 39 books. You are a television personality. You are a journalist. You are a food critic. You are a teacher. You have an institute called the Good Food Academy. Um, I'm just going down the list in my head of all the things I know about you, and I know there are many things I don't know about you. But the most recent is that you were just knighted 
<laughs> by the French government. So I have to say, um, this is why the idea of one woman wonder comes to mind. But Rajmi, tell us a little about how this all started and how you became such a force in the food world, and not just in India, but really all over the world. First of all, Roseanne, thank you. <laughs> You're extremely generous and kind. The thing is that this whole food story of mine is just too long and it might just put you to sleep if I start off telling you. <laughs> so just tell me uh, what exactly you're interested yes, in. Yes, okay, okay. Uh, well, why don't we start with, um, because I am so interested in other people's cultures and that we have the luxury of having you here. Rashmi, tell me about how you grew up and where you grew up and what food meant to you and what your first food memories were. Well, I grew up in North India, in the capital of India called New Delhi, but I went to a boarding school in Rajasthan. And since I'm a Punjabi, we, we North Indian Punjabis are known for our crazy mad love for food. <laughs> My mother's written two cookbooks. I learned cooking from her. I used to help her with the cooking classes. And food is really, really central to our lives. Every single thing is about food. If it's a birthday, if it's a wedding, it's a morning, everything. It's all about food. <laughs> just just the uh, joy of waking up in the morning is also about food. Okay. Yes, everything is about food, especially to us Punjabis. Like we are mm. known for our very, very hearty appetites, you know, big hearts, big appetites <laughs> and loud fellows. That's what we're known for. So interesting. But I did not know that about your mother, that she had actually written two cookbooks. Is there a, a culture of writing cookbooks uh, in India? And is this mostly women writing cookbooks? And the people who are in professional kitchens are mostly men? How right. does that sort of play well, out? Well, it's changing. Everything is mm -hmm. changing now. Like there are a lot of uh, men who are now not writing cookbooks and women who are. So it's all changing. Everything is changing. In fact, when I first started writing about food, yes, it was considered really lowbrow. Only greedy freeloaders were the ones who wrote about food. And I had lots of people, my friends who phoned me up and they said, what is wrong with you? Mm. Like you've done your, I've studied my law, my law degree. I've done my master's in administrative management. I worked with the income tax, the Indian Revenue Service, the IRS. Wow. And this, what are you doing writing about brownies? You know, they <laughs> fired the daylights out of me. So I was one of the very few first ones to start writing about food in India. And I wrote India's first ever city restaurant guide, which was great fun. It was like being, being like Columbus. Yes, I bet it felt that way. Yeah, it was great fun because there was no internet at that time. So I kind of went to a restaurant, took notes, came back and quickly plugged it into my desktop. So it was great fun writing that book. Well, let me ask you about that. You know, for people listening, this idea of the world before the internet must really seem incredible. But we were kind of getting started around the same time, you and I. Are we talking about like 30, 40 years ago or well, more yeah, recent? Well, it was in the 90s. So you started that in the 90s. So um, you had this crazy, wonderful idea about starting India's first food guide. Was it city by city? Was it this just was the a, big cities? No, this was a restaurant guide only to Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And after that, I wrote... Or Bombay, other, right? Bom yes, That's Bombay. what it was called then. Yes. And after that, I wrote other cities as well. I did Pune, Chennai, but after that. But this was dedicated to Mumbai, to Bombay. And it was not... It was mainly restaurants, but it was also... 
women who cater out of home, food services, like it is a comprehensive restaurant guide and three publishers refused to do it <laughs> when I wanted them to do it. They said, in India, we don't read restaurant guides. And besides, what's the point? In the next year, maybe 20 new ones will open. <laughs> right. <laughs> but when it finally did get published, it was on the national bestseller list for one year. Not because it was great literature, because, <laughs> yeah, because it was at the right place at the right time. You know, you really called that. You had the yeah. uh, premonition that this yeah. is what was happening. Because um, is there a very big eating out culture? Was there always restaurants were very important or that also changed over the last couple of decades? You when you the, wrote it, did people, was it a special occasion kind of thing where people went out to restaurants? Did they go to hotel restaurants? What was it like um, then? When I first started writing about restaurants and tracking the Indian restaurant scene, they were either five-star hotel restaurants or the ones on the street. There were no standalones, very, very few standalone restaurants, very, very average pedestrian ones. The reason we have not been an eating out, not had an eating out culture for the longest time is because we all have people, cooks at home who cook. I see. And uh, if either we have live-in cooks, you don't have to be superbly wealthy to afford them. You do not. No. This is not about that. No. And also grandmothers cook, mothers cook, <laughs> we cook. So this eating out culture wasn't there for the longest time. But when it did start, which was somewhere around the time when I wrote the book. Right, in the 90s. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, late 80s, 90s to begin with. In right. fact, I remember the BBC television interviewed me for one of their shows and they called it the Restaurant Revolution of India. Uh-huh. And at that time, I also pointed out that the reason this was happening is because a lot of uh, things were coming together at the same time. There was this burgeoning middle class. There was this growing, you know, income. There was the two income, you know, pe two people in a family working together. Right. There was also more travel. There was internet. There was television. Yes. So it was everything coming together at the same time. So like... People traveling abroad got exposed to, their palates got exposed to world flavors. So we don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> whether we asked for these, you know, Vietnamese, Chinese, or whether the restaurateurs offered these to us. But the net result was that the restaurant revolution had begun. And now it's really, really big. We have like a huge uh, kind of uh, flare up happening in the restaurant world, which is very exciting. This is so fascinating. Is there any connection between uh, kind of the emergence of the restaurant scene and the excitement and the uh, the socialization around it? Uh, any connection to Bollywood and the film industry? No, there is no connection. Normally, mm -hmm. a lot of things are connected to Bollywood. <laughs> oh, but I found I found the one that is not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. See, what happens is um, because we look most of our audience looks up to Bollywood. So when you see Bollywood, the Bollywood stars, it gives you an indication of what's happening in the real world. For example, for the longest time, the Bollywood women, for example, were very well upholstered. Like very well upholstered? Upholstered. They were like all <laughs> kind of, you know, rounded and big boobs, the rest of it. <laughs> and that was generally the norm. Now they're all size zero. They have the men have six pack abs. The women are <laughs> slender, and you can see in the also what's happening is that everybody is now into fitness. 
into staying fit, looking good, staying slender. So it's like so it's almost the antithesis of this uh, passion around food and restaurants yes. and eating, right? Yes. So there's a lot to manage. It's hard to be a person. Uh, and I think it's also hard to be a woman in this industry. So I'm so fascinated. Tell me again, I'm, I want to go back to the kitchen of your mother and, your, and the cook um, and what Punjabi food is. I, I, what are some of the uh, spices or some of the more uh, kind of iconic dishes that would describe that cuisine? See, Punjabi food is not extremely evolved or, <laughs> or sophisticated. Uh, like, how, how refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> no, like the rest of, like many cuisines of India are. You know, there is no such thing as Indian food. They're the food of India. Our cuisines are exquisite. They're complex. And they're to, each one is totally different from the last one. It's unbelievable. Rashmi, I, I want to just pause even for a second right there, because this may be one of the most extraordinary ideas, really. Uh, that there's no Indian food, but that there is the food of India. Yes. And I think we can say that, although no one has ever said it about American food, there really is no American food, but there is the food of the Americas. Um, so thank you for that. It just will give me something to really think about, yeah, to chew it's, on. It's like, it's like uh, there's no such thing as European food, right? It's the food of Europe. And like whether it's Italian or Spanish or French, in the same like Indian food is mind-blowingly gourmet and complex. Not just the quiz, not just the ingredients and the spices, the cooking styles. It's it's, it's so layered. I mean, yeah, the little yeah. bit I know about it, it's it is so fascinating. Yes. fascinating. And Punjabi food is not as sophisticated <laughs> as say the food from South India, from Kerala, or from Bengal. We have some basic. It's a ba there's a lot of basic onion tomato base which is there in a lot of the dishes. And uh, we are very, basically very hearty food. Mm -hmm. And what is surprising is that a lot of it is vegetarian. People think, you know, in the people of Punjab eat a lot of meat and chicken, which they do, but it's, we are basically vegetarian. We have some very hearty, wholesome dishes, like something known as sarsoka sag, which is made out of green leaves, green mustard leaves, which mm. is really really yummy and it's eaten with a dollop of butter everything in punjabi food gets better <laughs> when butter is added to it so so it's it's a very hearty wholesome cuisine and when you say butter do you mean ghee or or no, real ghee is clarified butter right by butter i mean the white butter which is churned fresh from the milk with the milk fat yeah wow yeah i i would never put those two together so did you just Introduce me to a fabulous new dish, but braised mustard greens with a dollop of butter. Yeah, it's Fantastic. called sarsoka sag. <laughs> and any herbs or spices in that? Oh, yeah, it has, they have a few very spicy leaves in it mm -hmm. called batwa. And of course, there is makiki roti with it, which is made out of corn. So it's all very hearty farmer food and it's really quite yummy. And what time of day would you eat that? That's for a meal, for lunch or dinner. Okay. And uh, Rashmi, can you tell me what you would have for breakfast? What I would have for breakfast yes. then or now? Uh, then. We're still in your childhood and you, your oh. mother's kitchen. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, my mother ate and still eats very unhealthy stuff. And uh, much to my dismay, I'm a bacon and eggs kind of person. And mm -hmm. even then, that's what I wanted to eat and that's what I did. But I went to a, con a French convent school. So you get totally influenced by that when you're growing up. Yes. So that was what I 
eat for breakfast. Well, I, I'm asking because you are so well known and now knighted for your work in the sort of the vegetarian realm that I was just curious about when that connection was made um, and the well, yeah, the the connection between uh, your past and being so interested in vegetarianism, and not just in Paris, but now you're going around the world and also writing cookbooks about vegetarian cuisine in other countries. Yes. What? What? Where are you off to now? <laughs> doing that? You know, the thing is that I'm not a vegetarian. Interesting. Though by inclination I am. If I'm given a choice, I would like to stay vegetarian. But obviously, I eat everything. From crocodile to whatever no, uh, I need to. But why I find vegetarian exciting is, I mean, there are a few fanatics who are flag waving and you must be vegetarian, you must yes. be vegan, it's good for your health. What is exciting is that it's now not just about health, it's about also pleasure. Mm. It's how gourmet vegetarian food is becoming all over the world. And I've just completed a thesis for my, I, I studied in Paris last year as the completion of my course in the Cordoba and the University of Rennes. I've done a thesis. It's called The Rise and the Rise of Vegetarianism. And it's about how not just for the planet, for your own health, but for all kinds of reasons, that's the only way forward. But I'm not being fanatic about it. Mm -hmm. It's also something which is really pleasurable. Like in Shanghai, I went to a restaurant on three levels, beautifully done, fabulous food, one star, pure vegetarian in Shanghai. Wow. In Beijing, you know, in countries where you least expect it. And guess what? The leading vegan restaurant capital of the world is, can you guess? No. Berlin. <laughs> is Berlin. Yes. The sausage eating country is <laughs> Berlin. You know, it's it's really fascinating what's so happening. So what? We were just in Berlin, and I wasn't really aware of that at all. I think I went to eat schnitzel. Oh, okay. um, but why do you think that is the case? I mean, I already have some thoughts. It's a very young population there. Yeah, um, yeah the young and the more, the more trendy, and they're into fitness and health. But the thing is, all over the world, it's a huge trend, and nobody's tracking it. I mean, that's really interesting. And you mean in this sort of scholarly academic way that you are? Yeah, but even are. otherwise, mm -hmm. like say, I don't know how many food critics can tell you where you can get some great vegetarian food. Like in Thomas Keller's French Laundry, he's had a vegetable menu for years, right? In New York, you have Dirt Candy, Amanda Cohen's, which has been yes. here for years. Of course, ABC has become ABCV also. Right. That is a wonderful place. Yes. So there's so much happening. Mm. I don't know if anybody, not scholarly, but even just tracking it. That is important. So that's to, become one of your many beats. Yeah. No, well, basically, I think I'm related to Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> I like to do things, go to, into territories which are uncharted because there are no rules to bind me down. Well, Rashmi, that's perfect because when we come back, we'll hear all about you and your connection to Christopher Columbus. Yes. Here's a cooking tip to share. It's for one of my very favorite fruit desserts, and it uses pineapple. You'll need a whole fresh pineapple, as ripe as possible. You remove the outside layer, 
and cut the pineapple in half lengthwise. Place the cut side down on a cutting board and cut across using a sharp knife into the thinnest possible slices. Arrange overlapping on a plate. Take one half a cup of sugar and melt it carefully in a skillet until it's purely liquid and caramel colored. Pour this caramel over the pineapple. It will harden into shard-like candy. You'll need one quarter cup of shelled pistachios and you put them in the food processor until they're finely crushed. I call this pistachio dust. And you sprinkle it over the pineapple and caramel. What an easy, sophisticated dessert. Enjoy. From my kitchen to yours. Give it a try and pass it along. So every year, Rashmi, I look forward to reading the top 50 restaurants uh, list. And how, how is it done? So it's called the World's 50 Best Restaurant Awards. The World's 50 Best Restaurant Awards. Yeah, we also have Asia's 50 Best Restaurant Awards. And we also have Latin America's 50 Best Restaurant Awards. So I'm the jury chairperson of the Indian subcontinent of the World's 50 Best and Asia's 50 Best. Wow. And I've been since inception, like 16 years ago, I got a cold call out of the blue <laughs> asking me to be part of this and to fly down to London. They said, we'll send you a ticket and why don't you come? And at that time, of course, nobody had heard of it. I was writing for the Times of India and the Times of India guy said, what are you up to? <laughs> so I said, listen, I like adventure. I'm going. You know, I what's the story? I mean, there's no big deal. I want to check it out. So I flew down to London and uh, it's a very exciting, interesting concept. It's a voting system and it's all on the website. It's all transparent and clear. We have 28 chairpersons around the world from hmm. different countries like Russia, Japan, China, India. And each chairperson sets up a voting panel and the voting panel votes for their top restaurants. It doesn't have to be an, always a great restaurant, a Michelin restaurant. It can be any restaurant, which is a great experience for them. And then it's the votes are audited by Deloitte. And the list is therefore the top 50 list is made. What is interesting about this list? Of course, every even if God came down and made a list, people would find fault in it, right? <laughs> that is true. So, but what is interesting is that it's kind of become a real roadmap for uh, gastronomes, gourmets, foodies around the world. And I'm not saying it's competing with Michelin, but it's on a different frequency. From because Michelin. it's not just about high-end dining. Yes. About it's everything. Also, yeah. I mean, it ends up being a lot about high-end, mm -hmm. but it's also explores countries which Michelin doesn't even go into, right? And there's no need to even compare it with Michelin because it's a whole different concept. And it's actually even driving tourism. Like before Noma, nobody went to Copenhagen. <laughs> That's true. Right? So it actually put that city on the map. So from all points of view, from the point of view of restaurants, chefs, it's giving them importance. It's giving them their place in the sun. It's re and it's, I mean, it's recognizing them for the rock stars that they are, which is really a great thing. And so I'm very happy to be part of this whole Thing. Of course, it comes up for a lot of controversy every now and then, but that's all part of the game. You know, I think it's a great way to 
not only just for the chefs at the restaurant, but also for the diners. So, Rashmi, what changes have you seen? You said this started around 16 years ago. Are there any trends? And I'm really thinking also about women. Are more women-run restaurants part of this? You know, there are a lot of changes and trends because there is from molecular gastronomy going back to now to uh, foraging in the backyard, Noma, you know. (laughs) So they're all different trends which are being mapped. But we have consciously in the 50 best decided to focus on women, including in my voting panel. You know, so we all our voting panels, it's very important to have women. We also have something called the world's best female chef, which again came up for, you know, a lot of questions. Why female chef and blah, blah, blah. But till I think we get to a point when women are very much out there, it's important to encourage them. So every year we vote for the best female chef. May I ask who it was this year? Um, Anna Ross was there the year before that. Dominique Crenn. Oh, yes, from California. Yeah, from California. So, uh, no, this year, coming up in 2019, is somebody from New York called Daniela Soto Inez. Oh, she's Cosme. fantastic. Yeah, yes. this year, for this year. Of course. She's going, going to be uh, getting her award in Singapore. I'm going from here to Singapore mm. for the 50 best. So that's Daniela. So it's every year we have this. So women are really important. You know, this is a little bit controversial, too, because uh, really on the one hand and then on the other hand, it is so wonderful that women are being seen and singled out. Uh, and yet at the same time, maybe someday that won't be the case at all. It will just be, you know, best chef. And yeah. we, well, we can drop the female. But to um, not acknowledge it would also be be a mistake. So we're living in very interesting times uh, in that way. And having been myself a, a woman chef uh, beginning 40 years ago to watch these changes has really been really uh, heartening, exciting, and um, and one of the reasons that this podcast exists. So Rashmi, I would like to go back to you and Christopher Columbus, because I think this connection is fascinating <laughs> and maybe best describes who you are in the food world. The thing is, Roseanne, that I am not wildly ambitious or crazily driven trying to get to some place. I'm basically uh, an explorer and a loafer. And that's what I love doing. And uh, so that's when I wrote India's First Restaurant Guide. The joy was in the writing. Mm. I couldn't be bothered if anybody read it or not. It just so (laughs) happened that they did. And then I wrote India's First Ever Nightlife Guide. Again, it was fun because it was, you know, it was not just about the nightclubs and bars. It was also about the street stalls, which open up only past midnight. You know, it was this whole, uh, the whole You were documenting a culture change, a big shift. Yeah, it was such fun. You were an anthropologist. Yeah, no, well, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. (laughs) Or like say... Just a great writer. No, 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 it was just fun. And even like say, The Vegetarian Guide to Paris. I had people who immediately discouraged me and told me there's no way you're going to find so many restaurants in Paris. It's not happening. We don't have so many vegetarian restaurants. Many Parisians discouraged me. This guy from the Wall Street Journal, Paul Levy, who coined the word foodie, he said the same thing. He said, you know, are you crazy? I mean, you're going to have a really slender book. So, yeah, <laughs> a pamphlet. But, yeah, but it was just fun to do it because, and it wasn't slender, like I've got you a copy of it, because it was such a challenge. It was exciting. And again, I did it for myself. 
I didn't do it for people to read it or follow it. The joy was in the doing. So I think that is the most important thing. That's what even like, say, exploring vegetarian restaurants around the world. For me, the sheer wonder of finding, you know, these in the places where you least expect them, like in the carnivorous capitals of the world, whether it's Paris, whether it's Berlin, whether it's China, Japan, you know, to find these fabulous, throbbing, gourmet, amazing vegetarian restaurants, it's it's a joy in itself. So I don't know if I would, how I would classify myself in that way. So um, I have a feeling inadvertently you create a lot of trends. So I know that there was one restaurant in Paris everyone talked about because it seemed to be the first high-end vegetarian restaurant. Arpege. And that was Arpege, Alain Passard. Um, I don't know how long he actually kept the whole thing vegetarian. I think after a while he started putting other things on the menu, and that's fine. But did many restaurants in Paris, because of your book, decide to become vegetarian? No, no. No such thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They were always, like, they were always, I think, um, a lot of pure vegetarian, macrobiotic, vegan restaurants mm -hmm. already existed. Right. That's from and, a different era. Right? Uh, yes. But a lot of very high-end restaurants, I could give you an example, when I did the book, um, all, all Michelin-starred chefs did amazing vegetarian food. And like, say, Guy Savoie, the youngest Nouvelle Cuisine chef, said yes. he loved vegetables and he didn't understand what there was not to love. <laughs> he said they are like different, they are different textures, they're different color, they're different seasons, whereas f meat and fish is all like a canvas. Yes, And he said, you know, they're amazing. Vegetarian vegetables are amazing. The only guy who refused to be in my book was a guy in whose hotel I stayed a lot. I stayed, my book was, my partner for my book was the Georgia Sank Four Seasons, mm -hmm. but for two years. But the hotel I stayed in a lot also is called the Bristol, where Woody Allen shot his film Midnight in Paris. So the chef of that, a three-star chef called Eric Freshaw, who at that time was Sarkozy's blue-eyed boy. He said, don't put me in your book. I said, why? He said, because I run a gastronomic restaurant and I don't want to be part of a vegetarian guide. So gastronomic restaurant means he had this big pig's bladder with chicken in it kind of food uh -huh. and, you know, all kinds of caviar and foie gras and all. But do you know, two years later when I went back, the same Eric Freshaw in the same restaurant called Epicure in the same hotel called The Bristol had a five-course vegetarian menu priced at 400 euros. So obviously, there was a shift. But you see, Rashmi... But it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> I don't know. Nobody would, would put that on their menus if it didn't mean money, right? So obviously, there is a big demand and there is a supply now. Fascinating. And do you make a big distinction between vegan and vegetarian? There is a natural distinction mm -hmm. because vegan doesn't include any animal or dairy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, I think vegetarian is far more common. Like yes. Far more vegetarian mm -hmm. than there are vegans. You know, it's so interesting about ideas. Many, many years ago, this was actually before my time when the two amazing men that I worked for created Windows on the World at the World Trade Center. The first time in 1976, they had a restaurant called the Market Bar and Dining Room. And they actually had a vegetable sommelier. Vegetables really? were a very big deal in this macho steakhouse in the mid-70s. Wow. And without even knowing why, many years, about 10, 15 years ago, when I wrote a book called Cooking 123, 
I don't know why I did this. It was organized in a traditional way, soups and appetizers and main courses and desserts. But I told my publisher that I wanted to put the vegetable chapter first. And I never knew why, but I think I was just sensing that something was happening. Wow. And then you and then you ran with it. And thank you for telling me or reminding me that I actually helped you name your book, A Vegetarian yes. in Paris. Yes. Because <laughs> I believed in it and you immediately. But if you could possibly tell us, what is it like to be knighted? What was the experience? By You were knighted by the French government. Well, um, the experience was uh, very special. It was in the French embassy in Delhi, and there was big hoo-ha around it and ooh-la-la around it. And uh, it was very fancy uh, kind of a cocktail and dinner reception with the who's who and the what's that <laughs> of this country. But also what is really special is that the same knighthood has been given to Audrey Hepburn, George Clooney. <laughs> so that's the closest I got to them. And also, one after having been given this knighthood, it's really simple to get my visas. So I get so like, something very practical. Yes. So that is really special. But also, I'm hearing that that food is has a new status now. That that you can be involved with in gastronomy and get this kind of award and, and attention. Is that something new? Were there a lot of people in the past who were involved in the food world? Who would be given such an honor? See, this has got nothing to do with food. It's the it's called the Chevalier of the Arts and Letters. Mm-hmm. It's about writing. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. So, thank you so much for acting. saying that. Yes, yeah, writing or acting. Writing and acting. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with food. It's arts and letters. So, like, I've done a lot of television shows in Paris, which I've shot in Paris and in France, in Monaco and in Lyon. I actually got an interview with Paul Bocuse. And uh, other than the Vegetarian Guide to Paris, I've been documenting French culture, food for the longest time. So it's a combination. It's not really about food. I'm hearing that. It really is about something much deeper. Mm, Well, something more different. (laughs) Yes. Rashmi, I know you have many exciting projects coming up. So I'm excited to hear about what's most meaningful to you right now. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Rashmi, before we talk about your new projects and what's really meaningful to you right now, I have a question. I, I don't know the answer. Do you cook? I love to cook. You've also been a mother and wife and um, raised, I, I know you have one son. Yes. And uh, what is he doing and what would you make for him? Did you have a traditional life too? My son is 32 and he's been studying in Los Angeles in USC. So he's been away from home for the last 14 years. He's an actor there now. And uh, the thing is, while I do love to cook, what I love to cook is not something my son loves to eat. <laughs> tell tell me about that. Because he's into steak and ah. all those kind of things. And I like to do the more lighter, the more Chinesey, Japanesey kind of food. So it's not something which he enjoys as much as his, you know, red meats and things. So, but I do cook every now and then. But then I also have a very, very good live-in cook. 
Wonderful. And um, are there certain cuisines right now that make you swoon? What are you really into eating right now? Actually, for me, it's Japanese, Vietnamese, Chinese, because the ingredient shines through. You know, there's not like swamped over with masalas or with sauces. So those are the cuisines I love. So that's interesting because in a way, maybe in contrast to some Indian uh, foods and preparation, these are almost cleaner, yes. kind of a cleaner, yeah, more lighter way to, to eat. And I know you cared so much about health, cared and care, because you had a column for 15 years in a very important newspaper in India about health. And you were one of the first. The thing is, you know, when I started, uh, when I left the Indian Revenue Service, I got two proposals, one from the Times of India to start their regular food column. They didn't have one. And the other from the editor owner of the largest media group called the India Today Group to do television. So I told him, I said, hello, I don't know what a camera looks like. <laughs> you know, you just do it. So I trained with the BBC and I found health as a very exciting subject. I could understand, and I still can't, why people find it's boring. Because health is what gives you energy to do all the naughty things. <laughs> How can you just find it boring? I mean, you know, it gives you energy. It gives you, it just makes you feel so good. So I started exploring the connection between health and food, of course, over the years. But actually, food is really something which can power you and it's not just fuel it can make you actually feel good and so I've been trying to find the connection between the two and when I produced and scripted and directed and presented this television show my co-anchor was a doctor and we did stuff starting from managing stress to smoking social drinking to cancer preventing cancer and it was always each episode, it was, a ma it was a magazine format way before its time. And each episode had a strand on that particular problem and food, like say stress and food, how to have more alkaline food to reduce your stress, so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a very exciting subject. And I'm sad that people don't focus on it as much as they do on food alone. Yes, you know? I think that is beginning to change. And I'm really realizing that you carry around some kind of crystal ball because you have really been so ahead of so many of these really important lifestyle um, trends and ideas. But, you know, you're making me think, too, you mentioned Hippocrates and that wonderful quote, let medicine be your food and food be your medicine. But there was another very important uh, man in the culinary world, Brilliant Savarin, who said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who, who you, are. you are. But, you know, I think this has new significance today because what you eat so determines who you are from a health standpoint. So I think that's something really new to think about when we use that phrase um, because they're part and parcel. We are our bodies. Uh, you know, what, how we feed ourselves is so critical. And I think we are living in a time of many contradictions, right, because the world is also getting heavier and not caring in some ways. But uh, I think there is more consciousness about it. Also, Indian, the Indian culture about Ayurvedic uh, seems in food and wellness seem to have always gone together for centuries. Is that is that true, that there was Absolutely. always an aspect of that? Absolutely. I did a television show with Gordon Ramsay for Channel 4 
where they fished me out of the blue so many years ago. And I said, you cannot have this guy come to India and not check our vegetarian food. So there's big resistance for three months, discussions to and fro. Finally, they agreed. So when he came to India, I took him to, this is all, this is all on, uh, it's, it's, it's a show called Great Escapes, where I told him, and they paid me thousands of pounds to be rude to him. And I told him, <laughs> I said, the reason he had this volatile bad temper was because of what he ate. In, in, because in India, we have, according to our ancient text, three kinds of food. It's not about vegetarian, non-vegetarian. It's sattvic, which is pure, which is fruits and vegetables. It is rajasvic, which is strength-giving, which is root vegetables, seafood. And it's tamsic, which translates literally translates to hell, hellish food. I said, that's what you eat. <laughs> this is fantastic. Which is red meat, organ meat, fermented foods. And that is the connection between food and not just your health, but your mind. And so I sent him off to South India to learn vegetarian cooking from Sadhguru Vasudev, who has this huge fan following, drives a motorcycle, speaks fluent English, plays golf, and is amazing, <laughs> believes in vegetarian food. So Mr. Ramsey learned how to cook and came back to Bombay and so on and so forth. So there has been a huge, I mean, there is a huge connection between food and health and food and the mind. In fact, I was at Mayo Clinic for some of my own problems and I had this long discussion with them. Then I said, you know, you guys don't pay attention to food. You just pop medicines. I said, one little pill is so tiny and you think that's going to cure everything. We eat kilos of food every day. What about that? So they actually have a whole wing in Mayo Clinic in Rochester where they actually explore alternate stuff, including food and everything, and they're working on it. So there is hope. So, again, I know many women in the food space, um, and we don't know each other very well, but I'm such a fan of yours. Also because I really believe what you say, that this is not about striving. This is, for you, it's about passion. And if you were to give any advice to people listening, and especially young women who want to work in this industry. And by industry, I don't mean necessarily being a chef or a cook, uh, being a food writer. What kind of advice might you give them? First of all, Roseanne, I don't think I'm qualified to give advice at all. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But the only thing I can share is that it's really important for all of us to do things we really enjoy. And I know it's difficult if you're kind of, uh, you know, the breadwinner and looking mm -hmm. after the family and your financial constraints. But it's something to think about because if you, like I worked for the Indian Revenue Service for 15 years, writing quasi-judicial orders which went <laughs> up to the Supreme Court, completely unequivocal, watertight uh, orders, and then to switch to writing about food and things I enjoy was a, like a real switch. But what happens when you follow what you enjoy doing is that not only is it something which keeps you happy, but everything else follows. Like this gentleman Deepak Chopra said to me, he said, you must never ever chase Lakshmi. Lakshmi is the goddess of wealth. Mm. But you must chase Saraswati. Saraswati is the goddess of learning of learning and enjoying what you learn. When you chase Saraswati, the goddess of learning, 
the goddess of wealth gets jealous and runs after you. <laughs> so, so it's 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 all. I think it's really important to do things in life what one enjoys, and uh, that is, I think, the key to everything. Well, that sounds like pretty special advice to me. So, thank you for that. Tell me about some of the projects coming up for you right now that, and what feels meaningful at this stage in your life. <laughs> Right now, working on researching vegetarian dining around the world. And I've just completed my thesis on the same thing. And I think working on this uh, project is really exciting because it takes me around the world and I meet different people. I do a lot of what I call foodie blind dates, <laughs> which I've done one in New York some time ago, in Paris, in Berlin, in Dubai, in Mumbai all the time. What is a foodie blind okay. date? Because maybe everyone can have one. Yes. So what I do is I put it out on Instagram or Twitter or whatever that I'm coming to your city and do you have any vegetarian restaurants we want to go to? And and I end up meeting the most exciting, young, vibrant, fabulous people and going with them. Like I did one in, in Los Angeles just a few months ago with these 20-year-olds. It was such fun. They took me to the most... I've been going to LA for like 12 years. I didn't know about these restaurants. So, you know, and I really believe, according to our Hindu philosophy... It's called the philosophy of Advait, which is the oneness of the universe. Mm. And this is really the oneness of the universe in action, where you actually feel the oneness with people you've never bit met before. And maybe you won't meet them again. But so it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting experience to do this. And I'm planning to do one in New York, but I haven't gotten down to it yet. So this is really the power of food. It's connectedness how it connects us to each other, to ourselves, to the planet. Yes. So beautiful. Yes. You know, there used to be this term called gourmet some time ago, which basically denoted a f gen generally a fat old uncle who loved cigars and <laughs> caviar. And, oh, a gourmet. Yeah, yeah all those fine oh, things in life. Yeah. Mm. And now it's foodie, which is basically somebody who... Uh, is younger probably, loves experimenting, loves eating food, loves reading about food, and very importantly, loves talking about food. And now, of course, <laughs> photographing food and Instagramming food. So this is the new ism, the foodieism, you know, which is very exciting. It connects all of us. It has no language. We don't need to have a language to be connected with foodieism. The it, It's not just, uh, you know, an exciting frontier, it's the frontier to be on. And what is really interesting is, not very long ago, this was considered one of the sins, gluttony. It was considered eating That's too right. much. That's right, one of the seven deadly sins. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've actually, I'm old enough to have seen the transition from it being considered one of the seven deadly sins to now this very trendy foodism. <laughs> you know, so it's a very, it's very interesting what's happening. Yes, it is. And you get to be part of all of it. Uh, do you have a few heroes in the food world, either past, present, or even future? <laughs> future heroes. Well, I mean, there is. I mean, there are a lot of them in the food world from... Uh, but it could be. Yeah, like Dominique Crenn to Massimo Batura to Mauro Colagreco to Vladimir Muhin in Russia to Nari Sawa in Japan. I mean, that's huge, my list of people I really, really admire. Gagan in Bangkok. And plenty in India as well. 
And thank you for bringing them to our attention. <laughs> yeah, this is really wonderful. So one last question. What does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? One Woman Kitchen. It means Roseanne Gold. <laughs> Well, since I, I'm a poet now, I think of it more as a metaphor. So what do you think about One Woman Kitchen? Are you thinking about your mother when you were growing up? Are you thinking about some of these amazing women that you vote for as being the top female chefs in, in the world? Is it one woman? Might it be many women? Many women. Many women. But I'm happy you're doing this because this is great. Thank you so much. I know so many people will want to stay connected to you and follow you. So how do we find you in, on the internet or in the world? A website well, or a I Twitter? Started, I started on social media four years ago when I got pushed into it by this friend of mine who's the editor of Rob Report. I said, if you don't get onto it, you'll become a dinosaur. I said, I am a dinosaur. What do you mean become a dinosaur? <laughs> so anyways, he pushed me. So I bought myself a smartphone. And so I'm on Instagram, Twitter. Facebook with at Rashmi Uday Singh. So that would be at R-A-S-H-M-I-U-D-A-Y-S-I-N-G-H. Perfect. Thank you. I think the advice uh, for everyone is if you want to meet Rashmi, uh, invite her out to some great vegetarian restaurant. I will do the inviting. spread the love. <laughs> I will do the inviting happily. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roseanne. This is Roseanne Gold, and thank you for joining Rashmi Udai Singh and me in my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.